It's good to see you all back once again uh, this afternoon. I hope you were able to get some refreshment during your uh, afternoon hours since we were last together. I know it's often the habit in, in our household that on a Sunday afternoon between services, we, we take the opportunity to have a bit of a nap and get refreshed. I had the delight of spending my afternoon uh, with Alfred Saquia. So I did not get my normal Sunday afternoon nap. I hope you did. Perhaps you heard of the, uh, the preacher that, that dreamed that he was preaching. <laughs> and when he woke up, he was. So it's one thing for the brethren in the pew to get a bit sleepy. So pray for me that I don't get sleepy as well. You know, one of the oldest and best stories that people tell each other are what's called quest narratives. It's a story where the protagonist, the hero, goes on a journey, and the purpose of the journey is to, is to accomplish a quest, to, to uh, to achieve a valuable goal. His journey is a mission. He's on an adventure and he faces all kinds of obstacles and difficulties and enemies and danger. And as we travel on this journey with our hero, the tension builds and mounts because we realize on the one hand the value and the worth of the goal for which the quest is launched and yet on the other hand look at the dangers that he faces look at the opposition what happens what happens if Frodo does not get that ring to the mountain of doom what happens in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress if Christian doesn't make it to the celestial city. Maybe more in keeping with biblical truth, what happens if Moses doesn't lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to the, fair, to the promised land? Maybe more foundationally, the question, what happens if Adam fails in his probation. He doesn't fill the earth with image bearers and transform the world into a temple in which God might dwell with man and man be brought with his domain into the blessings of God's eternal Sabbath rest. What happens if Adam fails? That's a tragic quest story. You see, to the extent that we're convinced of the good and the true and the vital necessity of the success of the quest, to that extent, we're going to be drawn into the drama of the necessity of our hero being triumphant and succeeding in his quest. All the more when we realize that he is facing what appears to be overwhelming opposition and great danger, but he must succeed. Well, we return this afternoon back to Revelation chapter 5, and we enter into 
the greatest of all quests. Let's read from verses 1 through verse 7. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The greatest of all quests was accomplished by none other than the Son of God. That second person of the Godhead sent by the Father to accomplish the messianic mission and to save his people that have been given to him by his Father by overcoming tremendous opposition, the opposition of Satan, the opposition of the hosts of demonic beings, sinful men, perverse governments, and even death itself in order that he might bring us to that glorious end for which we were created and now are redeemed, that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now we have looked at the first four verses in our morning worship service, so tonight we resume with a sermon entitled, Stop Weeping, the Lamb Reigns as we look at verse 5 to verse 7. First of all this evening, consider then the command to stop weeping. The command to stop weeping. We find in verse 4, John's weeping. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John's weeping is the primordial visceral cry of fallen man in need of his salvation. What a strange sound to hear in heaven. We've already heard the sounds of heaven in chapter 4, where we see the four living creatures, like the seraphim in Isaiah 6, and they are shouting repeatedly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come in chapter 4, verse 8. What an unusual sound as the strong angel repeatedly asks, Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? And now there is the sound of profuse wailing and weeping. And John is crying and he's weeping. He weeps in heaven. But it's the sound that rises from the throats of mankind across the whole face of the earth. We're told after the first murder, when Cain killed his brother, the Lord said, the sound of Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. 
What sound does earth's soil make in heaven tonight? What sound would dominate the soundtrack if we could record the sounds of the planet Earth during the course of the history of mankind? I submit to you, you would hear the sounds of weeping. But in chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 5, John is approached by, notice, an elder who gives him this command to stop weeping. Now, we've seen 24 elders in chapter 4. Many believe, and I concur, that these are the representatives of God's redeemed, both from the old and from the new covenants, And this one who has experienced the redemption of God's grace comes and informs John about the one who was about to enter onto the scene, none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And this gospel of the lion lamb is communicated by one who has experienced redemption. It's interesting. The strong angel doesn't tell John to stop weeping, but this elder does. Angels are curious And they are intrigued by your salvation because the Son of God did not become an angel in order to bear the sins of angels. But he took to himself true humanity that he might bring humans into the glory of the sons of God. And the angels are intrigued by this. So the message of the gospel comes to us by one who has experienced this gospel. And this elder comes and tells John, stop weeping. Stop weeping because this question that has been asked all through the annals of human history has now finally received its satisfactory answer. There is one who is worthy. There is one who is worthy. There is one. And he indeed is worthy. And so John is told, stop weeping, and hear me, stop weeping tears of eschatological despair. Stop weeping tears that are cried in hell where there is nothing but despair, where there is no hope of salvation. Stop weeping those tears. Stop weeping tears of eternal despair. That brings us secondly to the admonition that we see in verse 5, behold. In other words, look at the triumphant lion. First, stop weeping. Second, look. Notice how your eyes are so significant in this text. Your eyes that so easily fill up with tears. What do you do with those eyes? The elder tells us, look, behold, put your eyes upon the triumphant lion of Judah. 
Look with your tear-filled eyes at the revealed truth and see with the eyes of faith what we read in verse 5. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Look at verse 5. Look, one has overcome. In the ordering of the words in the original Greek, there's an emphasis first on the fact of victory. One has overcome, and then we're introduced to the victor, the lion. But it makes clearer sense in English to say the lion has overcome. But the emphasis is first of all upon the victory. We win. There is triumph. There is victory. There is the overcomer. And he is none other than the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, this takes us back into the Old Testament. There's no way you can study the book of Revelation and not keep turning in your Bible back to the Old Testament because John writes the New Testament, but he dips his, his pen into the ink of the Old Testament. And so this prophecy goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. There in Genesis chapter 49, we read a prophecy of Jacob concerning his son, Judah. And this son is prophesied to be a lion king who reigns with his scepter until Shiloh, which is an ancient world for the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of God, speaking of eternal glory, until Shiloh comes. And during this reign of this Judean king, this lion king, all the nations of the world will be brought into submission to his throne, for his is the global success of his throne. Read with me from Genesis 49, just at verse 9 and verse 10. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares to rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not only is this the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is also, notice in Revelation 5, 5, the root of David. And here we are reminded of the promises that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7 called the Davidic covenant, the root of David, sometimes called the branch of David, that offspring of David himself. We read of this one described as the root of David in Jeremiah 23 and 33, in Isaiah 11, in Zechariah 3, this is a prophecy of the messianic king who will govern the monarchy, the throne of God, and his reign will be characterized as one of justice and righteousness, for he will administer the rule of God. If you turn in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, you'll see what I just alluded to concerning this one 
who is none other than the root of David. Reading the first 12 verses of Isaiah 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow will bear and graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria and Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, and Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, and he will raise up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth." That's a description of the reign of this redemptive Messiah, this, this root and branch of David, whose reign has a global extent to gather the people of God under the government of the king, a monarchy in which righteousness and grace and salvation is the blessing of the rule of those who are governed by the son of David. He is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. These are two messianic titles that help us to understand the person and the work of Jesus revealed to us as the incarnate Son of God on the pages of our Gospels. This is Israel's heroic warrior king, the Davidic king. That's how he's introduced on in the first page of our Gospel in Matthew chapter 1. And verse 1, Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this elder in heaven points John's attention to this victorious Davidic warrior king, the overcomer. Isn't, isn't the picture, picture David, the king of Israel. Picture him in the prime of his life. See him with the athleticism of an Olympian gold medalist who has won all of the medals in the decathlon. He's chiseled in his manly physique. He's a fierce warrior, a skilled swordsman. And he emerges now onto the scene, coming out of a battlefield. Behind him we see the corpses of his enemies strewn across the surface of the field. His shield is dented and damaged from the effect of conflict. 
and in his hand he yet grasps the sword which is dripping with the blood of his enemies. The king is here. The lion of Judah. The warrior king who has been triumphant. He is worthy. He is worthy to open the book and its seven seals. He is worthy as this great warrior king to administer God's decree of redemption to salvation for his people through the course of redemptive redemptive history. Who is worthy? The question is finally answered. The son of David is worthy. The messianic king is worthy. He's the lion of Judah. He's the one whose profile was begun to be drawn back by the prophecy of Jacob. Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, this is the worthy one. He is the one who has overcome. And we must overcome. How? By becoming like this lion king. By overcoming as this one who has overcome. Well, that begs the question, how did he do that? How did he defeat his enemies? Am I painting the right picture when I'm envisioning the Lion King, the Davidic warrior king, as one who is coming out of a medieval battle, if you will? And who are these defeated enemies that he has conquered? What has he done that qualifies him as the overcomer? Well, it's the gospel that answers all those questions, for it's the gospel that particularly comes to us thirdly this afternoon. We've been, first of all, given the command to stop weeping, and then with our eyes, secondly, to look upon the triumphant lion, and then thirdly, once again with our eyes, thirdly, see, see the resurrected lamb, the resurrected lamb. Look at, again, Revelation chapter 5 and, and verse 6. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I saw between the throne. John first specifies where the lion is. He sees him in proximity to the throne among the other courtiers in God's throne room, kingdom. John is seeing the same thing, not only that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, but that Daniel saw, if you turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we read of the Son of Man, this one who now comes and takes authority of the kingdom of God. I kept looking in Daniel 7.13, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. 
the Son of Man. We read of the Son of Man in, in our reading of Psalm chapter 8 tonight, didn't we? The Son of Man. It's a title of, of our essential humanity in one sense. When you read the prophecy of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is repeatedly called Son of Man, Son of Man. But not, this is not how the title Son of Man is used for Jesus as only to speak of him in his humanity. The Son of Man is defined by this prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. This is the the Son of Man who is none other than the Lion of Judah, who is none other than the Lamb who is standing and has been slain. This is none other than the resurrected Jesus Christ. This is the prophetic description of the risen Jesus Christ. These are spotlights that shine upon the risen Lord, shining from the Old Testament. Old Testament spotlights that tell us how to understand and interpret the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Notice back in Revelation chapter 5, this lamb is standing. In the Greek language, the, the verb describes that he has come into a standing position. He has now come into a standing position, and he bears the mark of one who had been slain. And that's technical language for what a priest would do to a lamb when he would slit the throat of the lamb, offering that lamb in blood atonement and sacrifice. Here is one who is standing after having been sacrificed as the Lamb of God, which is how John introduced him to us on the banks of the Jordan River. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he now in his resurrected glory, in his glorified body, still bears the marks of the cross, bears the marks of his sacrificial death as the lamb sacrificed to make atonement for the sins of his people. And we have been introduced to this sacrificial lamb all through the pages of our Bible. This is none other than the fulfillment of that Passover lamb that was the basis upon which the tenth plague did not enter into the house of those who put the lamb's blood on the doorpost of their home. This is that sacrificial lamb that is repeatedly celebrated in the Old Testament temple worship of sacrifices. This is none other than the lamb of God that was introduced to us by John the Baptist. This is the suffering one. Again, we turn to Isaiah. Now in Isaiah 53, Verses with which I'm sure you're familiar, but once again, painting the suffering servant of the Lord as a sacrificial lamb. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He bore our punishment. He bore our sins. He died the death that we deserve to die. How? 
as our sacrificial lamb, as our sin-bearing substitute, as the one who propitiates the wrath of God against us by virtue of his sinless, perfect death on the cross. So here is one who is standing. And again, the grammar in the original says this is a completed once-for-all act. Whatever this means for him to be standing, he's done it once, final, completed, and it is now done. And he's standing as if having been slain. And the grammar there says it's something that happened in the past. Before he came to this standing position, he had been slain previously. He's now standing, having been slain. What is it? It's the picture of the gospel, brethren. It's the picture of the resurrected Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us at Calvary, as we just sang earlier this evening. This is the Son of Man coming, ascending into the glory cloud that that Daniel saw him as he ascended into the clouds of heaven and the angels said to the onlookers, in like manner he will also return. And he enters into that glory cloud that we see him from the vantage point of earth, but he comes out of that glory cloud into the very throne room of God from the vantage point of heaven. Who is he? He's the triumphant lion of Judah. How did he get here? He's the sacrifice lamb of God who was resurrected now in glory. And he, he is worthy. He is worthy. For he has overcome. He bears the marks symbolically in this apocalyptic vision of one who has perfect power and perfect wisdom. Seven horns, seven eyes, the seven spirits of God. These are the spirits sent out into all the earth. Why? Because the ascended lamb now is king. And as king, he has given his spirit to his church to take the good news of his resurrection victory to peoples of every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the world. And to do so with great confidence. Go into all the earth and proclaim this gospel for all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go. What does John see? He sees all the authority in heaven and earth given to him. How does he see it? Seven horns and seven eyes. Horns is a symbol of strength in the Old Testament, representing the strength of a mighty king or a mighty nation. Seven horns is a description of perfect power, perfect strength and authority. Seven eyes is a description of divine omnipotence. In seven eyes of divine omniscience of his wisdom. The seven spirits of God. As I alluded to this morning, how many spirits are there? There's one. But John is talking about the Holy Spirit with a symbolic number of perfection and holiness. He's the Holy Spirit. John says, I can talk about that apocalyptically. (laughs) He's the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's the spirit of God. And that's the, the God whose eyes we were told in chapter 4 and verse 5 of Revelation, these eyes, they're, they're the work of the Spirit. 
the, the work of the seven spirits who were the seven burning lamps before the throne. And they are the, the, the penetrating ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his enthronement that the promises of the messianic age, those promises of the old covenant, finally, the messianic age has begun finally. The king has begun his reign, and his reign is prophesied in particular to be the age of the Holy Spirit, the age of of that spirit which Jesus has told us in the Gospels that the Father has promised to them and that promise fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So that when you are the beneficiary of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you are receiving the work and benefits of Jesus Christ himself. It's interesting that the seven letters that we read of in Revelation 2 and 3 are penned by Jesus. Jesus writes to each of the seven churches. But you know how each letter ends? Each letter. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You say, I, I, I thought this was a letter from Jesus. Shouldn't it end, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what Jesus says to the churches? But let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches? How can this be? Because what the Spirit says is what Jesus says. Because what the Spirit communicates is nothing other than the very living and true words of God. This brings us fourthly to consider that the Lamb is the enthroned sovereign Lord. You see, when we come back to Revelation chapter 5, what we are witnessing is the coronation of King Jesus. And again, in God's providence, we're about to witness the coronation of a king in the nation of Britain. It's a big deal. <laughs> well, how bigger of a deal is it when the worthy one is now being coronated upon the throne of God. Notice in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. The focus is upon the right hand of him upon the throne and that scroll in his hand. Then notice verse 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. See what John writes in verse 7? It's the same thing he wrote about in verse 1. It's another literary technique in order to tell you, I'm talking about God's right hand and that scroll in his hand. The technical language is, is it's an inclusio. It's a, it's a bracketing a way of speaking. You see, John didn't have a computer. You, you probably know that already, right? So when he wanted to emphasize something, he didn't put his cursor back over his words and, 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 and bold it or italicize it or underline it or capitalize it or put it into bigger font. 
he uses literary techniques that are directed particularly to the ear of those who are listening to the Word of God and reading the Word of God. And he says in verse 1, I'm talking about the right hand of God in that scroll. And in verse 7 he says, I just got done telling you about the right hand of God in that scroll. What's, all, what's that all about? It's about the overcomer. It's about the lamb who has overcome, who is none other than the lion, the triumphant one, who is the lion of Judah. He came and took. Here again the grammar is, John sees this one come onto the scene, and he initially has proximity to the throne in the throne room. But then he moves closer and closer, even as Daniel saw the Son of Man approaching unto the Ancient of Days. And he comes, and he takes the scroll from the right hand of God. And now he is the worthy one who is on the throne of God from where he administers the government of God in breaking the seals and unfolding the scroll, thereby advancing redemptive history toward its God-ordained conclusion. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is risen? Yes. Do you believe he rose from the body with his resurrected body? Yes. Where is he? Where is he? Well, chapter 3 of Revelation and verse 21, we have an answer to that question. In chapter 3, verse 21, at the end of, of this, the seventh letter, he who overcomes... I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Where is he? He's taken his seat upon the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 7, reading at verse 17, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide into springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Where is he? He's on the center of the throne. He's seated upon the throne from where he is shepherding his people. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of God forever. Why? Because my shepherd is my king. He has overcome. He is seated upon the throne of God. He rules. He reigns. He is my triumphant Lord. In chapter 22 of Revelation, again, toward the end of John's writings in verse 3 and verse 4. There will no longer be any curse, and the, throne of, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, that is, in the new heavens and earth, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will no longer be under any curse because the triumph of the Lamb will be complete in the consummation of the salvation of his people and the resurrection of our bodies and at the time of the resurrection of the sons of God the entire cosmos is going to be brought up into the glory 
of the sons of God. What a wonderful destiny we have, my friends. What a wonderful future. What a wonderful hope. What a glorious salvation is ours. What a glorious Lord we serve. Believe it? Can you see it? John's asking us, can you see it? I looked, and behold, I saw, and I see. Are your eyes open? Can you see? Not easy, is it? Well, look at Ephesians with me for a moment in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Reading in verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance, of his saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says, I pray pray that God will open your eyes that you can see this because the only way you're going to see and understand this is by a work of the Spirit who takes the Word of God and turns your ears into eyes so that in the hearing of this gospel you see what is revealed in the light of the Word of God and your faith agrees with the spiritual sight of your opened heart and you say I see him he's risen he is ascended he is exalted he is enthroned he is my Lord he is my God he is my Savior he is my King Paul prays and says I'm praying for you I pray that you'll see this I pray that your eyes will be open. Well, my friends, what can we say in conclusion? Well, certainly we can say by way of application, stop weeping. Because as Christians, our eternal hope is secure. Stop weeping. Because as Christians, our eternal hope is secure. Let me ask you a question. Do Christians cry? Are you a Christian? Do you cry? I told you this morning that when Paul was writing the letter to the Philippians, he was speaking about the enemies of the gospel. He says, I write these things and tears are dropping off my cheeks onto the page. I'm saying these things weeping. Do Christians cry? Jesus tells us, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep in Luke 6, 21 and verse 25. What do you think was the expression on Paul's face when he cries out in Romans 7 and verse 24, 
wretched man that I am. How do you think Paul's expression was when he tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 of the thorn in his flesh that he prayed three times that the Lord might deliver him from it? And yet the Lord said, no, my strength is sufficient for you in your weakness. Do you think it caused Paul to shed a tear when whatever that thorn was, that messenger of Satan, do you think it caused him to cry? Who doesn't cry? There's something wrong with you (laughs) if you can't be brought to tears when you're seeing the ravages of the war in Ukraine, when you're seeing the massacres that are being carried out right now in Myanmar, when you see all that is around us, the ravages of what's happening in Nigeria, in Sudan, the terrible effects of man's wickedness and sin, does it not bring you to tears? When we see the unraveling of the social order in the West and the increasing apostatizing of once professed Christian churches. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, as he walked toward the grave, he said, Jesus wept. Because he's confronting the most tragic inevitability of the human condition. He's looking at a dead man. And it's enough to make him cry. Later that week, when he is brought in the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, and everyone is celebrating with the palms being waved, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, what was Jesus doing? In Luke 19 and verse 41, we're told Jesus was crying. And the word Luke uses there could be translated wailing, not just a little sniffle convulsing because he's looking at the city with the eyes of the true prophet and he sees the destruction looming just some 40 years from then when in AD 70 that entire city would be destroyed by the Roman army there is a time and a place to cry blessed are those who weep well wait a minute how do I put that together with the elder telling me as a Christian stop weeping how do I understand it well I gave you a clue earlier this evening John stop weeping those particular kind of tears those are the tears that have a particular quality about them as a Christian don't do that don't cry those tears Don't cry those tears. Why? Because those are the tears of eschatological despair. Those are the tears of utter eternal hopelessness. Those are the tears that will be wept in hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth where those in hell come to the realization, I have no hope, no salvation, no deliverance, No end to now the visitation of God's wrath upon me as an eternal rebel. I'm gnashing my teeth in anger as I cried. John has said, don't cry those tears. Don't cry those tears. You'll cry about many other things in this age. You'll cry about the persecution 
that the church has to endure. You'll cry about the compromise that rises up within professing churches, compromise of doctrine, compromise of purity of life, compromise with the seductiveness of the Babylonian harlot. You'll, you'll weep. Oh, you'll weep. You'll weep when you see brothers with whom you preach the gospel and they've left their pulpits to embrace an adulteress. You'll weep. You'll weep. But John, dear Christian, don't cry those tears. Don't cry those tears of eternal despair. Don't cry those tears of utter hopelessness. Why? Because there's one who's worthy. Because there's one who's worthy. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. He is the lamb standing, having been slain. And brethren, we too must overcome. Overcome is one of the main words in the book of Revelation. Every letter ended not only with he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, but every letter ends addressing he who overcomes. The overcomer is the Christian in the book of Revelation. We also must overcome. How can we overcome? We overcome by going the way of the Lamb. We overcome by following Jesus Christ as his disciples. We overcome by denying ourselves, by taking up our cross, and by following the Christ who is headed toward Calvary. Because that's how the Lamb overcame. Having been slain, he enters into resurrection glory. And that's the way in which we now enter into resurrection glory by following the Christ of Calvary with the hope of our union with the lion of the throne. For the only way to the throne is through the cross. And the only way to overcome is by going the way of the lamb. And that's the way we are called it's an unusual way to fight a war. We face all the powers and opposition and principalities and tribulations and circumstances that threaten to pull us away from Christ and to, to get us into a situation where we say, well, I don't know if I believe that anymore. I don't know if I can trust Jesus. Look at the way I'm suffering. Look at the circumstances of my life. Look at the disappointments I have to face. Look at this opposition against the gospel. Look at all of the things we are like sheep being led to a slaughter. Well, that's exactly what Paul says when he quotes Psalm 44 in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. What does he say next? But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And he uses the very word overcomer there. We are more than overcomers. He has to make up a word, actually. Hyper-overcomers, hyper-conquerors in all these things. Not after, not instead of, but in all these tribulations and all of these afflictions, all of this opposition. We persist and pursue Christ. Why? Because he loves us. Because there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
because he is our reigning king and he is our great high priest and he intercedes for us and he gives to us his spirit and he guides us in the light of the word of God and he has granted to us life and faith and hope and we live for him and in him and we go the way of the lamb and we overcome. The good news of the gospel, my friend, is that Jesus Christ is risen. And Jesus Christ is reigning. And Jesus Christ is our overcomer. And now we too are given a quest. <laughs> we too have a story. It's the story of our lives, it's the story of a quest a quest that occupies our entire life. And we are to pursue, first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are to forsake all things that we might follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We must endure to the end. We must run this race with our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ and we must lay aside every weight and encumbrance and every sin that so easily besets us and we must do as he has done who for the joy set before him despised the shame and endured the cross and has now sat down at the right hand of the Father. We too have a quest. We too are on a mission. We too are to live a life that is a quest narrative to run our race, to finish our course, to endure to the end. Are you in the race? Are you in the way? Are your eyes upon Christ Jesus? Are you seeking first his kingdom, his righteousness? Are you making progress in your most noble quest, your most noble journey that takes you finally at last into the loving embrace of him who loved you and gave himself up for you, knowing that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would indeed enable us to experience afresh your everlasting love, to be embraced in your everlasting arms, to know the love of God which surpasses all knowledge, that we might be filled with the spirit of this God to live by faith and hope and love. These three abide. Father, fix our eyes upon the glorious Jesus Christ enthroned as our great God and King, and enable us to live even now for him, that we might live forever with him to the praise of your matchless name. Amen.